And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? It's that time again, Steve. Back to give the people what they want. Yes, and here we are. And before we get into today's topic, let's do our Scholar Clubhouse rundown. What's popping in the clubhouse? Too much. So Too much. Too much. Too much. You know, John, I got to admit, last week, earlier in the week, one of my favorite topics was people were uploading freaking video of the runners doing, you know, sprinting to middle distance pace, 800 to 1500 pace. And we had like a group breakdown of running form and running mechanics. All, all just in the in the chat. Just let's break this down. Let's get coaches going. And I thought this is such a wonderful way to dissect, communicate, like problem solve all at the same time. Because these are really difficult problems. Like running mechanics in general, like even if you're the world pro on it, an expert, it's tough to figure out, hey, I know how it looks, but what happens if I change this? What does this look like? What happens if I do this? How do I make this change? And I think it's so cool that we got to see that and have that dialogue in real time with like coaches who are all trying to solve the same problems. Yeah. And then, you know, we also have our classics like workout breakdowns, as well as the new thing, which I'm really excited about is kind of the mental fitness um, channel that we just started that was um, coming off of the train talk live we had uh, this month or last month, I should say. Um, And that just seems to be a really robust area of dialogue and enthusiasm and curiosity for a lot of people. So now we have a a channel just dedicated to resources, questions, answers, um, communication, um, you know, consolation even on mental fitness and having athletes, you know, highly motivated and highly competitive when it counts and also also and most importantly in good spirits yes i can't wait for that to evolve so if you haven't checked it out join the scholar program be a part of it get access to all these awesome courses we're going through a marathon course right now getting ready to prepare you for the fall road racing and marathon season if that's your thing So join on in. Be a part of it. All right. So this week, the difference between mediocre and extraordinary. It's not what you think. So, John, this topic came about after you said, hey, I read this book on tennis, of all things. Steve, you got to read this. And then I read it. And I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. And it's not a recent book. It's decades upon decades old. And it's fascinating. So I wonder, John, to set the stage, maybe if you could describe the book we're talking about. Yeah, totally. Uh, This, you know, I go down all these various rabbit holes and try to find, you know, interesting thoughts, uh, essentially. And this was a really interesting thought I found um, just because, again, it's really important to be multidisciplinary in your approach to uh, whatever your pursuits are. And the concept comes uh, from the book, The uh, Ordinary Player's Guide to Extraordinary Tennis. 
Um, and in it essentially is a retired um, scientist who had a passion for amateur tennis. And what he noticed is he noticed certain relationships. And the relationship was essentially this, that the ordinary players actually all fail or are ordinary in a very, very similar way. And the extraordinary players are actually very different and very extraordinary all in different ways. However, most people who are ordinary think they're extraordinary. And so they try to play the game in the way that the extraordinary player plays the game when they really shouldn't do that because they don't have the skill set to play extraordinary, extraordinary tennis. They have only ordinary skill set. And so rather than trying to strive and make or get points, their best strategy is just don't F up. Like just make fewer mistakes. And if you make fewer mistakes against another ordinary opponent, you'll probably win because that's really what the game is between two ordinary opponents is who makes the most mistakes, self-made mistakes. And so this concept is very interesting because there's a lot of validity to it. We often think we got to strive and we got to do this and we got to do that. But really at the end of the day, it's about minimizing your amount of errors until you crest over to the extraordinary tennis where that's where you're trying to play the game where you're like you're trying to just hit a ball just right with just enough spin that your opponent too gets to a fraction of a second late and you actually earn the point versus give away the points. And that's what most ordinary tennis players do is they give away points through self-made errors, faults on serves, poor returns, poor positioning, etc. You know, I love one of the first lines of this book, which sets it up. And the author, Simon Ramo, hope, hopefully saying his name right, uh, says, people who play tennis think there is only one game called tennis. Actually, there are two. And I love that because it sets the frame because it's just what you talked about there is that his Ramos thesis was very simple. Many people are playing who are playing tennis are playing the wrong game. They see the pros, they see the elites and say, Oh, I've got to do that to make hard, precise shots that tennis is this game of skill and making those precise shots. And it is at the elite level. But the game that those tennis players are playing on the weekend isn't that game. The perfectly placed shot is very rare. <laughs> Instead, what wins you points is, as you said, not messing up. You know, so like extraordinary tennis is about playing to win and figuring out how to win. Ordinary tennis is just don't mess up, like play the fundamentals. Don't get fancy. Keep the ball in play. And eventually your opponent will, you know, hit a bad shot and, and lose points. And I think this is such a easy concept, but a brilliant one. Because now let's think about track, running. Where do we go for almost all of our information on, on training and competing and all those good things? Where do we go? We look towards the elites. We look towards the best of the best. And I get why we do, but they're playing a different game. 
they have a different skill set. They have a different talent level. Even they have a different. It's it. Their races are different. And if you don't like, you know, recently I went and watched a high school meet. John, I know you coach high school, so you get to see it all the time. One of my wife's uh, cousins is running high school track, so I was like, "Great." Let's go watch a high school track meet. Um, it was fun. It was great. Kids ran well, all that good stuff. But what I noticed was like, even when you watch the races, you know, I was I was stuck in college and professional race mode for a while. And you watch the races and you're like, ah, oh. like their tactics are different. How they respond to things are different. Like the pacing of their races are different. This is a different game out here. And I think if we just apply both to the training and the racing, the extraordinary or the elite phase of, of training, we're doing our athletes a disservice. We're not training them for the game that they're playing. Yeah, it's been really refreshing and interesting to come from the professional elite side back down to high school coaching and basically have to reorient you know, uh, the toolbox and lessons I'm teaching at that level, right? Because like, yeah, at the pro level, you're trying to like position someone to take advantage of a fraction of a second of, you know, quick, you know, fitness, uh, quickness, so whatever you want to do, strength. And it's a game of inches because everyone's equally as good. And it's just a matter of who can find that little, you know, as they unfortunately say, marginal gain, that will just put your nose across the finish line right ahead of someone. At the high school level, that's not the case at all. <laughs> at the high school level, a lot of athletes, unfortunately, beat themselves before we're halfway through the race. And so it's just making sure we set up uh, athletes not to you know, um, beat themselves by trying to win, but essentially playing not to lose in the beginning so that they can then play to win at the end when it counts like think of it as like you know first half second half teams right we have the um nca uh you know a championship game this year with uh north carolina and kansas and you know the psychology on this is really interesting and i know steve you've referenced it and we can probably go down this rabbit hole but we tend to when we think we have it oh i got it oh uh, you know it's in the bag in like the first half of something we tend to coast the second half, right? And that's that's totally what a lot of people do. They go out hard and they think, oh, I'm on pace. Okay, now I can like ease off a little bit and coast. When the reality is when you want to actually, you want to save your energy for the first half so you can spend it all in the second half and rally yourself towards the finish and leverage the fact that at that level, most people are coasting or have spent the energy up front and thinking it's just going to be a cruise to the finish, which is not going to be. So at the high school level, I, I remind my kids, like, be a second half runner in terms of let everyone expend all this energy to hit this pace they were told they have to hit versus conserve as much to be in the game, still be in the game, but then rally, 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 and spend all your energy in the second half so you are, you know, leveraging the fact that you have – held up some reserves, you know what game is being played, and then you're easily leapfrogging, you know, other uh, competitors who 
spent all their energy and all their nerves and all their mindset early on thinking they, oh, I have it. It's in the bag. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to good way to put it. And it's absolutely true. If you look across sport, if you look across life, when we think it's in the bag, it's our brain's excuse to turn down the dial. It's like we've already accomplished our goal. Uh, you know, our brains are often, if you look at how they work, the biology behind it, it's often to get us going, not to actually hit the goal, right? All right it, it's like, even if you look at hormones like dopamine, like they are released to get us to go hunt. They aren't released when we capture the prize, when we get, when we, you know, get the animal. Why? Because... You know, our brains kind of think, hey, if we can get us out the door and towards it, then we'll be okay. So it's the same when we talk about competing, right? Is it's about getting us out the door. It's not about, you know, the end part. Um, Something else that comes to mind here on this, what game are you playing, is... What I'll call the copycatting of of the pros or the copycatting of of Jerry Schumacher and, and the Bowerman Club, which is increasingly on the high school level, you start to see um, more selective racing, right? More higher end athletes only racing, you know, the big invites and all this stuff. And it's as meant as, hey, we're not going to over race our athletes. And I understand that concept, but I think we miss out on something, which is high school racing is developmental. Yes. One hundred percent. Like you watch you again, you go to high school meet and even the really good athletes, they don't know they don't have the skills to race. Right. They're still developing them. It's all over the place. Even if you look at their tactics in terms of following kids, in terms of where they position, all that stuff, it's all over the place, even for the good ones. And this is why the NCAA system often is is pretty good for um, developing elite athletes because they have to learn how to race and race in championship style races, which sometimes other countries like maybe the UK don't don't get as much. So what I like to remind, you know, high school coaches is you're not playing the game of Jerry Schumacher. You're not trying to say, hey, here are the couple races and we're going to run lights out times and feel good about it. Your kid doesn't have the race savvy, the instincts, the awareness, the psychological development to understand what the crucible of racing and tactics within it are. You need to put them in races so that they develop that. Like that's where you develop that skill. So I think here is one of those places where sh- hedging towards this professional game, this different game, actually hurts high school kids over the long haul. And I've seen this um, as a college coach and as a professional coach, but as a college coach, you get athletes in and you're like, oh, like you're really good. Your times are on this other level, which tell me you can compete on the college like high level or what have you, but your tactics are crap. You have no familiarity with racing because like you only race selectively or you were, or sometimes it's like you only raced races where you were the dominant person. Um, and then 
second second of all, your training tactics, understanding, ability to work with others is crap as well because you know you're probably the best in your high school and you've never learned how to sit in a pack and deal with things. Actually, you know, I'm going to go off on another tangent here. Um, if you want to have fun, even at the college level, the in the regional 10Ks are wonderful to watch for this because they shove 48 people on the track at once. Okay. And they say, hey, you top 12, you get to go to nationals. Well, 48 people on a track is nuts. It's like wild. Yeah, it's a wild, wild west. Um, like that there's it I you know, you never see anything it, like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just wild. Okay. But what you quickly learn and find out is who is comfortable in giant packs and not. Right? Who is okay being surrounded for a couple miles by like everybody and their brother because the pack stays together for a really long time and isn't freaking out. And who has the capacity to run really fast, but is totally freaking out because they're stuck, literally can't move in the midst of dozens upon dozens of their fellow competitors. And learning how to relax and be in control, even when you're swallowed in a pack, is a skill that is developed. So again, what game are you playing? Not all of us are playing the elite Olympic trials, Olympic games, qualifying game. We're playing other games. And year after year, you see really good athletes who maybe should qualify in the 10K don't, who had the fitness don't, partially because they're not ready or prepared for that game. Yeah, I think that's the biggest error, especially in track, is people will just play the statistics game, right? And this is why I think high school kids shouldn't go pro no matter how good they are. Because what ends up happening is they want to run one fast time because, yeah, they have fitness and they get in this time trial-esque environment and it's all set up and they go out fast and that's good and fun and it's interesting. But then we have to ask ourselves, like, when and how are they going to learn how to compete in a tournament-style setting round after round after round? And we have this concept that, like, you know, if you're just more fit than everyone, it carries you through. But at some point, you're going to run into a bunch of other people who are just as fit as you. And what happens when you're in a cohort of a heat of people who are just as fit as you, whether it's, you know, at the regional level, whether it's at the USA level, whether it's the world level, then what? And oftentimes they wilt, right? I mean, things don't go their way. Like, they're like, what happened? You're fit. It's like, because it's not just a simple, like, send in the numbers game. It's uh, what are you executing, where you're working on, what's your strategy, what's your tactic, what, you know, is your mindset? Those are all very, very complex things. Um, and as you said, Steve, like at the high school level and the college level, you get time to develop that. It's kind of like, you know, the motor learning of learning how to walk and then run, right? You first got to like wiggle on the ground, scoot on the ground crawl, stand up, fall down, you know, it's, it takes a lot of time, a lot, lot longer than we want. But unfortunately, you know, we see the game saying, oh, this is what this high level coach is doing. So we should all be doing that. You know, it wasn't too long ago, right? When Alberto Salazar was in vogue and everyone was doing post-race workouts at every level <laughs> and they're just, you know, 
blitzing it. All right, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this because that's what was shared. And like, oh, we think to be good like that, I need to do that. And the, the, it's the absolute inverse at depending at the level you're at. To be good, you have to actually be less bad. And to be less bad means you have to make less errors. And to make less errors, then you have to figure out where are the biggest errors or leaks of energy. And for some people, it's mechanics. For some people, it's just a fundamental lack of fitness. For some people, it's their mindset, right? And the difference is, um, two, I was talk- talking to my wife about this, is I've coached people who are winners and I've coached people who are really fit, who could win and don't win. And you're like, what's the difference there? And the difference is the winner's mindset is all different. They all have different ways, but it's very simple and it's just very straightforward. And it's just, I can't communicate, um, you know, the, the straightforward simplicity of it versus the fit loser's mindset is a striving mindset. Those are all the same. The fit loser mindset is very similar. It's they are striving rather than exploring. They're saying, oh, I have to. This is the way it has to be done. It's like you're working too hard, right? As the old timers say, you're muscling it. And so they think there's this like continuous narrative that's going on throughout the season. And because they did this earlier on, that then, you know, means they should or have to do this now or what have you, what have you, what have you. And it's like, no, every race, every performance is a, a one-off. It's a so it's I mean, unless you are a musician playing the same songs night after night, the conditions are different, the competitors are different, the circumstances of the uh, context of the race are different. They're all different. But what you're trying to do as a coach is stabilize performance in different crucibles and environments. And we tend to think, oh, I got to stabilize people to run a certain time. You know, but here at like the Oregon State meet, you know, my, uh, the high school girl, one of the high school kids I worked with, she was running, she was out in front, you know, she was like, okay, you know, we never talk about times, we never talk about PRs, you just go say, run your race, execute your strategy. And then for three laps in the middle of the 3K, it just started hailing. (laughs) You're like, yeah, it's been a long, long winter, you know, here in Oregon. And it was like, oh, we got hail. This is cool. She didn't freak out. She just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. She ends up winning the race by like 120 meters, right? But it was just like, yeah, it kind of got hard when it was hailing. But then I realized everyone else had to deal with the hail. So I just kept running. I said, you know, sooner I, harder I run, sooner I get it over with. I was like, yeah, it's a good mindset. There we go. Rather than like a lot of our coaches around me like, oh, there goes, there goes this person's time. Oh, there goes. Like I heard them just like, you know, audibly moaning and bitching. And I was like, what game are you guys playing? I love it. This is a quick aside, but when I was in college, of all places, Texas Relays, we're running a DMR. I'm running the 1200 leg, and about 400 meters into it, it literally starts to hail. This is this is Texas. You know, we're just like, what in the what is going on? Hard here? precipitation falling from the sky. What is this? Yes. What is this? But I remember running against um, in 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 the in the leg was uh, Tim Conival, who's a, who's a good friend now, who's uh, Canadian and was at at Pitt, I think. And you know, he just 
said something in the middle of the race, I, I believe. And I just remember looking over and I'm like, I'm like, great. Here's this Canadian guy who's going to be okay with this. And I'm from Texas, but if he's pushing, I'm going to push. And I remember we ran like three flat or something like that. And I remember thinking, you know, that's not bad at Hale, so I'll take it. But it it it, it is so much of um so much of the mindset around, you know, what game are you playing? Where are your weaknesses? What are your strengths? How do you shore those weaknesses up and lean into what you're good at? And I think I think the example actually that I'm going to go back to is one that you mentioned there is the the Salazar post-race workouts. So before everything blew up, you know, and my whistleblowing and stuff, while I was coaching at Houston, I remember we, we have an indoor track, right? John's been there inevitably during indoor season for years what would happen after this blew up with the Salazar post-race workout is people go from indoors, they'd walk out the back door, be at our outdoor track. It's Texas in January or February, so weather's fine. And you just see people cranking these workouts race after race. You know, after the race, go crank a workout. And I remember one of my 800 guys came up to me and said, Steve, look at these guys getting extra work. Like, why aren't we doing that? And I remember telling him, like, you don't need to do that. This isn't for you. You're not playing that game. You're not ready to like add on extra work after all out race. Now, would they occasionally after like a fake, what I'd call a fake race, right? <laughs> Where it's like, Hey, this, this was just a practice. We're just, let's do a tempo runner or something af- afterwards. Yeah, Absolutely. But after an all out all out race, would I have them then go work out? I'd be like, no, you're 18 to 22 year olds. Most of you, especially at that time, were like undertrained, didn't come from major programs, weren't used to doing a lot of work. Like, I'm not throwing you in this stuff. And I remember them being like, but like, didn't didn't you know the the group you were coaching do this? I'm like, yeah, but they're elite athletes who also have some extra special stuff maybe to be able to recover and handle these things. It's a different game. And I think this is a, such a great example of, well, what game are you playing? And I've saw this at, it's not only at the college level for a while. I saw, I saw this even then occasionally during at the high school level. And again, I come back to what game are you playing? Because as we talked about in a in a recent podcast, if you're already going to the the post race workouts, the doubling up, you know, racing and workouts, where are you gonna go, man? Where's what what's next? You know, what's next for this kid? If this kid's doing that kind of stress and that kind of level in high school, where are we trying to get adaptation out of? The only reason professionals do that is because they're trying to take advantage of, hey, we just raced. We've got this flood of hormones. Like, let's try and get some extra benefit here and and double down here. And for certain athletes, it works. But for the high school level athlete, you're playing a different game. And I think this is, you're more likely to do them a disservice and harm 
than you are to help them. I'd much rather see those high school athletes, if you want extra stuff, go on a longer, easier cool down. You know, instead of a mile jog, go on 30 mi- thirty minutes, really freaking slow, you know, and then maybe do some strides afterwards, whatever. But that's more beneficial to me than doing doing a post-race workout. And I again, just to drive the point home is don't copy, play the game that is in front of you, you know, understand what you're trying to accomplish. And if you do that, you're going to be in a better place. Yeah, it's I mean... We can even look at, say, let's go back to fast high school boys who, quote unquote, turn pro. And, you know, they're highly unsuccessful, actually. The rea- that's the, the reality of it, right? I mean, you know, and not to throw shade at anyone, but like Drew Hunter, not really successful. Even Alan Webb early on, not really successful, right, um, in terms of winning things. And we have to remember, like, what game are we playing? Are we here just to be fast losers or are we here to figure out how to win? And part of being of winning is being fit and fast. Yes. But also at the same time too, you know, like, you know, you see posts now, like what happened to Hobbs Kessler? Like what happened to this person? Well, if again, we look at these people who are real fast, even in high school who went to college, there tends to be a learning curve of competition. There tends to be a learning curve of training. There tends to be a learning curve of failure versus we place this, um, you know, unnecessary burden or expectation on athletes who express some fast times or marks young in America as like, oh, it's only up from here. Well, I mean, we are going to find the ceiling of super shoes eventually, right? We found the ceiling with like all weather tracks. We found the ceiling uh, you know, with, uh, uh, dialing in all the different like aerobic, uh, you know, capacity upgrades. We even, we even found ceilings like with different supplements and, you know, blood lactates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We will find this ceiling very fast. So then you get to this question of like, all right, not everyone's at 330, 1500 meter ability. What's the difference between the person who crosses the finish line first at this race or the person who gets six. Because again, look at any 1500 meter sprint at the you know Olympics, World Championships, what have you. Most time, it's just a humongous group of people, <laughs> you know, who are all tightly bunched together. And the difference between you know third and seventh is not that big, right? But we tend to think we're the special snowflake and the you know the the out the um, extraordinary outlier. And that we should do what, say, someone in the Oregon project was doing, or we should do what, you know, David Rashida did, or we should do what this person did. And the reality is, like, look at the developmental pathway for an athlete and a person and where they are psychologically as well as physically. And that mental literacy and physical literacy is really important to um, uh, keep in mind at all times. I think that's where we kind of lose the plot because it's so easy to just go for the stats and go for statistics. But at the same time, too, like that physical um, literacy and fitness can be a phenomenal. I've coached athletes, phenomenal, but really poor self-concepts or really poor games that they were playing. I mean, it, it was funny. I actually I ran into like Michaela Fricker here who was coaching at a, a small, small, small high school than I am. And, you know, it was just so exciting to see her. I haven't seen her in several years. You know, she was just 
all excited and um, for her kids. I mean, she's a really good bubbly personality. I mean, two flat 800 meter runner, you know, in the pre super shoe era, uh, always competitive, knew how to win. Like one Adrian Martinez, one different meets here and there. Like when, like she NCAA, NCAA division two national champ, high school champ. She knew how to win. She, we, we got along really well because she played the game to win. Um, and I asked her like, you know, how'd you learn how to move? She goes, I don't know. That's just how I moved. Cause like, you know, her mechanics were just amazing going back and looking at them now. I go, geez, I, you know, I was more lucky than anything with the, her mechanic profile. Right. Um, you know, how'd you learn how to compete? I don't know. I, you know, just, I want to go out there and I want to win. So that's what I did. I go, okay. Very simple, straightforward answers. Like she understood why she was showing up on race day. She understood what preparation was and she didn't necessarily like to train. She wasn't like, yay, training. She did it because she understood that she needed to get better in certain areas so she could do what she wanted to do when it came to the time to compete. And I think sometimes we invert that a lot, right? We say, oh, this person's really good because they train a lot. But then I offer like the high school kids I worked with, we didn't run more than like 10 to 15 miles a week on purpose. One day off every week on purpose throughout the whole season on purpose. And yet they're competing at a really high level for them. They're competing, you know, playing the game and winning. They're running, you know, they're having all smiles. They're learning life lessons. So, you know, we need to understand where someone's at and ask ourselves, am I teaching them how to be a fast loser or how to play an ordinary game, thinking they're playing an extraordinary game? And kind of we're both fools for this, or are we trying to nurture them away and play the ordinary game really well and put them at the precipice of then their next step in life, their next phase, maybe being able to enter and start playing the extraordinary game because they've advanced beyond uh, the ordinary game. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's like being aware of where you're at and that transition point as well. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where as a high school coach, maybe if you think of it as, Hey, do I have someone who has the capability to, to go to that next level is what do I do to prepare them to be able to succeed? Now, some athletes, as we talked about in previous episodes, like they're going to stop their career at high school and that's totally fine. They're playing a different game right? Cater to that. But if you get the Drew Hunter, the Hobbs Kessler, the <laughs> Athing Mo, whoever it is, like you have to think of how am I going to prepare this athlete potentially for the future? And I'd agree. I think that if you look at it, the success rate for high school kids going pro, it's not always the best. And if you look at it, there's often a, I would say, a slightly higher shot at the sprint stars, like maybe a Noah Lyles or Arian Knighton going pro early. And I think that's because sprinting is about mechanics and is technical and yes there's a mental component but it's highly technical it's about yeah it's about you it's about you staying in your lane yes. focusing on your race 
I mean, you can yes. you can run whatever time. It's just you, but it's you. Yeah. Distance running isn't like that. No. And I think that is, yeah, I think that is where you often see this difference is that a high school hundred meter race and a professional hundred meter race are essentially the same. Now I get it. Like you're going to be running next to people and pressure of having someone come up on you or get out faster. But if you talk to any sprint coach, they will tell you, focus on your lane, execute your race. Now, is that always done? No, but that is the goal. In running, you can't say in distance running or middle distance running, you can't say, you can't say like focus on your race and that means something, but it doesn't mean ignore everybody else because that can't possibly happen. So I think what we see is when you go to college, and I mentioned this earlier, what happens is you're forced into this crucible of NCAA is kind of brutal. You're going to have to compete in cross country sometimes, which is a little bit unfamiliar for maybe the middle distance star. And you're going to have to go through conference meets, which are often in tactical and then qualifying rounds that are often kind of crazy and sometimes in some really crappy environments. You're going to have to run a 10K in, in Austin, Texas occasionally, either for regionals or nationals. And I think that kind of preparation, A, can be beneficial, but B, if done right, can occasionally take some of the pressure and expectations off. Now, they're still there at the college level. But if a coach does it right, they can take some of those expectations off and allow them to develop. And I think actually you saw this to a degree with Texas A&M and Athang Mo in her one year. Or yeah, like I think Mo is a great example because did she run her premier event at every championship? Nope. And I think that was intentional because, again, it's changing the dynamics, learning how to race, and also taking them out of, hey, we're going to just stick you in your premier event and you need to dominate and set records and like get us all these points and blah, blah, blah. And I think that was a very deliberate and I think helpful for putting her to have success later that year. Um, at the world level. And I think, again, you see this when you're just thrown into the pros, you miss this developmental step. Now, does that mean you can't get it? Does that mean Hobbs, Kessler, or whoever won't? No, I think he's surrounded by a great team of Ron Warhurst and Nick Willis and others who are going to try to develop some of these skills. But it's a little different because you're in a different game. And actually you're seeing this to a degree with Cole Hawker right now, who is running phenomenally, but kind of got thrown into, Hey, I'm in the NCAA system. This is how it works. I get thrown onto the world level. I'm doing this thing. And now in his first year as a professional, like, I mean, we're recording this after the meet formerly known as Occidental, which now 
now is the USATF high performance meet, um, where he got, you know, he got beat. And his normally trusty kick wasn't there. Now, am I concerned? No, he's got good coaches, all that stuff. But I think it shows that, again, there's there's different at every different level. There's a slightly different game playing and at every different level, you have to adapt. And if you have done the work to put the skill sets there, then it's easier to adapt. If you haven't, and let's say you've tried to play the pro game in high school of, hey, let's run fast, run against professionals all the time and do this, blah, blah, blah. What happens is you often set yourself up for um, for some roadblocks and some developmental failure. Yeah, and we're seeing this more and more, right? It's, um, you know, a lot of people think winning correlates to running a certain time. And if they don't win, get the time on the day, they feel like they lost, even though they've already said, I can't be the outright winner of the overall placing. But it's also reminding people, too, that relationally, you can compete in the group you're in, right? So if you're, you know, in this mid-pack, backpack, whatever, don't just focus on the watch and the clock. It's also say, hey, take advantage of the heightened opportunity to be challenged and compete with those around you on the day. Because too often, you know, you see it even in like road racing for the um, amateur, sub-elite, and even just the everyday athlete who's coached up is they let the opportunity to explore competing against certain other uh, groups of people whiz right by them or play mind games with themselves and negative self-talks in the last half of the race, what have you, and say, oh, I could be challenged by these people around me, especially if like, you're a lone wolf trainer, right? If you're training by yourself, races should be awesome because, oh, I get a group of people to challenge me and stretch me a little bit. And let's see what I can do. Let's explore. But oftentimes, when we have a striving mindset of saying, I want a return on my investment of time and energy and work done, and I want this return to be X, and that's why I'm doing the work. And if I don't get the return that I want, then I'll be disappointed. We miss an opportunity to really like take a leap to you know go to the next level, try something out, or crash and burn horribly and then learn from it. You know, there's only, you know, there's only two things, right? There's success and then there's learning. So, but oftentimes we take failure as permanent. Failure is not permanent. It's, that's another, you know, common uh, misguided belief of say ordinary players is they think that when someone fails, like as you referenced, Steve, Cole Hawker, that's it. Game over. No, no, no. This is just, you know, this is just one, you know, round in the game. And it's the ability to keep showing up and keep playing the game, keep playing the game, keep playing the game, which matters most. Because the more looks you get, the more opportunity you have, um, the more you learn. And few people are in a Jerry Schumacher situation, which is essentially this. He's looking to exploit maximum revenue generation via an athlete's contract. And so they look at the contract to say, this is how you can make the most money. And this is how you can get the most economic return as a legitimate professional who's just about, hey, I need this dollars for my livelihood. So we're going to do this path. You good with that? Yeah, I'm good with that. Okay, so what we'll require is not to do all this, but to do this instead. And then when you go, go, right? 
unless you have that type of mindset and structure to your, you know, incentives or, or um, finances with what you're doing, it probably is not the best way to go about it for you where you're at. Like at the high school level, like that in mind, like I get no bonus for like someone winning a state meet. I get no bonus for someone saying a school record. Like it's just fun. It's just fun. It's like, hey, that's cool for you. That's awesome. But we're here to have fun and make, learn some life lessons early on that will help cement your identity and hopefully shape you in a positive way for the next stages in life. But we have to always put that in perspective versus, you know, in this age of chatter media overwhelming people, I think we forget like, yeah, you get 15 seconds of fame now and then it's on to the next most sensationalized thing. And don't chase that. Don't chase that. Chase the reality, which is you got one life to live and you want to live the, the life you have to the fullest. As I told um, like one of the ki- one of the other kids I worked with, he had the fastest time in his division this year in the 3K and the race was set up perfectly. He was right there. He, you know, it was a big group of four guys with a lap to go. And I was like, oh man, he's going to do it. This is exciting for him. And you know what? He didn't do it. He I was like, and I asked him afterwards, I go, man, what happened? He goes, oh, I thought I had it with a lap to go. And I go, yeah, but you, that that's, I go, you forgot to sprint. You forgot to like push. You forgot to dig deep. You forgot to do all these things we talked about, <laughs> right? Like, you know, but, and he was really, really disappointed. So oh, I should have won. Oh, it was no good. Like it was just this him and the And I was like, dude, you write your own book. You write your own chapter. Like. It, I, and I remind them, like, in the Bhagavad Gita, right, you only get the your, the fruit of your labor is the labor. You only get the labor. You are not in control of the fruit from the labor. But sometimes if you labor hard enough and dutifully enough and grittily enough, the, the fruit will be rewarding, but it could also be sour fruit like it was today. He goes, and I go, man, I'm so proud of you. It's still a good season. You got the 1500 tomorrow. No big deal. But it was just like a good learning moment where, you know, he kind of played the ordinary game, thought it was in the bag because, oh, I was feeling good. I was feeling great. Like all these markers of saying, yeah, ready to go. But he forgot to do the most important thing, which was spend it all, as I tell them on the last lap, spend it all like it's the final leg of the four by four and you're anchoring, you know, um, you're anchoring a four by four and you have to come from behind and wind. You have to spend it all. And that's why we save up all the energy with good form and economy throughout the, um, you know, the race. So on that last lap, you can spend it all. And he didn't spend. And I was like, man, it's okay. It's like, but again, it was one of those things where it's like, it was a really good moment and opportunity to have a dialogue, to identify it and go, look, you still have value. You're still awesome. It's, I thanked him. I go, it's been a great year coaching you. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun. You're not done yet here, but again, put it all in perspective. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's great. And I, I, it reminds me of another situation where often we forget the game we're playing, which is even at the professional uh, level and college level is rounds. Right. Like we think the game we're playing is to conserve, get through and conserve. 
but the game you're actually playing is like qualify for the freaking next survive round. Survive in advance. You know, survive in advance. Survive. Right. So what happens at at every level is you see someone who was fit enough, good enough, able to execute, miss the round because they tried to be like miss advancing because they tried to be cute. Right. They tried to ease off at the wrong time. They tried to get in, you know, as thought they'd be able to easily kick in instead of like just get the time qualifier and feel good and 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 survive it. And you see this especially in distance running even on if you're the final heat, right? Where you know the times you have to advance. And often what happens is we get in our head we're thinking about the next race saying, "Hey, if I can get through this easier, then I'm going to be able to do next time and then we don't even or next race better and we don't even have and what happens is you don't even have that chance or opportunity. Yeah, no, and that's what the, this kid, he'd say, oh, yeah, I want, I know I had the 1500 tomorrow, so I didn't want to get too tired for that. I go, dude, that's the difference is there is the I got it, I have this, let's coast mentality versus I really, really, really want this. And you look at same as someone like Evan Jagger, right? Evan Jagger has a really good mindset about that. He goes, you know, I don't take any race in a tournament lightly whether it's the preliminary round or the final, like I got to do what I got to do to make sure I get the ability to get to the next round or the next starting line. And then when you get to that final, right, which is, that's it. There's no other starting line after that. You go with what you got, but you have to spend. It's this hard balance, right? You want to spend as little as you need, but you need to be okay with spending as much as is necessary to get to that next starting line and to get to that finish. Line. And so this is really tough because it's like, oh, well, if they're just fit, they can coast. And it's like, there's no coasting. <laughs> if you have that mindset, you know, like you're not going to make it. And, you know, a really good example, right, is the famed, uh, you know, Brian Braza fall at NCAs in the steeplechase, right? Where like you thought he had it. I thought he had it. He thought he had it, but he knew he had to go for it. And he went for it and it wasn't like, oh, I have it. It's like, I want this and this is my strategy to go get that. But what happened, Steve, before that final when it looked like he was, you know, on his way to win NCAs? What, remind me, what happened that the race before? <laughs> he, he, he squeaked into the final. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I was with you. He's like, you're like, oh, F, he might not make it. <laughs> yep, squeaked in. <laughs> Because he was trying to get cute, right. you know, yes. and and that's what happens. Again, he had the fitness. We talked about not getting cute, but there's still that very strong pull, right? It it's like, oh, I need, especially in steeple, where how how many times do you run a steeple prelim, right? It like never occurs except for at the highest level, right? So, so again, that's where it, it comes into it is like you have to, you know, you it's very tempting, even if you say it, it's tempting. And, you know, the funny thing is earlier. So that same year we had a shot at Houston of winning the national championship and we came in third, Brian, obviously we had a couple things go wrong, but 
one of the major things that went wrong actually happened at the the preliminary round a couple weeks before, which we had literally an NCAA champion who was coming off some issues, but NCAA champion who went on to get second in the 100, didn't qualify out of the prelim rounds at the NCAA preliminary. Yeah, I remember that. In the 200, the main event. <laughs> Why? Because he was coming off a little bit of, of injury stuff, but he was healthy enough to qualify, already did in the 100, and tried to take it easy in the 200 just to get through. And he just barely missed advancing, even though he had the fitness to run, I don't know, a half second or more faster, which is an eternity in the 200. Um, because again, it was, let's get, let's get cute. And this is elite level guy, you know, a good guy, world-class competitor. And this is what happens every once in a while. And that's why I think it's important to understand coming back to it. What game are you playing? Like, what are you trying to do? And if you can understand and do that and keep that into perspective, then you're going to be able to succeed. If you don't, if you're trying to play a game that isn't going to work or isn't the game you should be playing, trying to get cute, etc., then you're you're setting yourself up for trouble. And that's, yeah, a lot of times people want more fitness so that it's quote-unquote easier or less stressful to compete. And all fitness does is just shift the... Um, you know, goal line in a different direction, but the effort, right? This is why Canova is really big on study the effort. The effort's always the same, whether you're eight minute pace running or four minute pace running, like it's always the same degree of physical strenuous output because that's the whole point. You, you know, I get told, uh, uh, the high school girl won the three K go, look, you know, tomorrow you're going to orange line most the race and then the last lap you're in a red line but you're there's no 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 yellow line no green line no white no like it's a fine fine balance it's a fine skill you're an orange line and then i asked her afterwards hey how'd the race go he goes you know with the hail and everything it was like yeah it was hard i mean it was hard the whole way but you know i just kept in my mind what you told me just keep keep pushing and i go good there you go and that's, I think, a lot of like, you know, mediocrity or losers want easy, easy money, easy victories, easy status, right? And it's hard earned. It's winning is hard earned. Competing at a high level consistently well is hard earned. And that is kind of like the, the hardest thing is people want a shortcut or a hack, right? And we see this in society more than ever. And it's starting to trickle down into running and sport. Versus running used to be like the blood and guts world. Like you're going to be the toughest SOB out there, right? Like that was the narrative for a long time. And that's the only path is to be super tough. I remember my college coach, Chris Milnberg, who's now, uh, you know, North Carolina. He would tell us before a track meet, you know, all that mattered is getting on the track and being tough. That's it. I just want to see you be tough. And the person who can be toughest the longest and, you know, not give in and who has – you know, gives in the lat at the the least or the the lat, latest moment. I should say the latest moment relative to everyone else. 
that person will probably be the winner. But everyone needs to be tough. And it's about how long can you be tough. And that was a really good mindset. And actually, it fueled my best year collegiately um, competing on the track. Because when he was there before he um, took his opportunity at Georgetown back then, uh, it just it colored the game for me in the right direction for what I needed at that time. And then I just said, okay, that's all that matters. And lo and behold, boom, every, all my college PRs, like my best competitive year, made it to regionals just because of that subtle shift, but important shift about what game I was actually playing when I got stepped on the track. Yeah. And this is where it's, again, it's like awareness and then setting and framing that for your athletes. And I think that's where as coaches, like we can do the best benefit is, is how are we helping our athletes frame what they're about to do and what game they're trying to play for the race that they're about to run. And, you know, at the high school level, sometimes that's, what are you trying to get out of those small dual meets? How are you framing them? What sort of development are you trying to get out of at the invitational or state level? Like, what's the point of this? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to develop, you know, racers who can, go through rounds or handle pace changes or whatever have you it's like think about it as skill development not always as hey we need to win this i want to run the fastest etc like keep the big picture in mind yeah i mean it's distance running is like we talked about a little different than some of the other events in track and field because you have the ability to rise to the occasion and so many times I see it at the high school level here. And this is, it's really fun to see actually like coaches are just like ecstatic because their kid made this leap and like, I had no idea they could run that time. Like nothing in training indicated they're capable of running that time. Right. And it's just like, and they have these break quote unquote breakthrough or really phenomenal outlier performances because these are just competitive kids who are rising to the challenge of competition. And so often we forget that's so important and so valuable because we just went through, you know, this whole uh, pandemic related pause where people were mailing in their times. And it was like, Oh, that's cool. You, you, you did this time trial by yourself. That's cool. You mailed in this time. That's cool. But it was just like, Oh, that's neat. It's a, it's not only about the stat. It's about the relation of the competition to the other human beings in the field And that's the fun part that when we um, really focus on, that's what we're preparing people to do is relate in a really healthy way, relate in a way that inspires growth and relate in a way that allows someone to take a leap and explore and build self-confidence and a self-concept they might not have previously had and be able to give them that evidence that they have this efficacy and can do things if they just you know, risk and rise to a challenge. That's the beauty of, you know, coaching and distance running and why I love it. And to me, it's when we're solely locked in to this striving to get a superficial matrix or metrics, mark, stat, time, place. And that's the only reason you showed up is for status seeking purposes. Um, You know, I I think ultimately it just shortchanges everyone. Um, in in the arena yeah i think you're spot on john i think that's a 
a wonderful summary of like why this is important and especially why this is not just athletes getting caught in status seeking it's coaches as well. And this is why in whatever you do, I'm going to branch beyond sport. You need to understand the game you're playing. And this is why this book on tennis, it was such impactful because guess what? It, it This applies to social media. What game are you playing? Are you playing the consuming game or the sharing game, right? Or whatever game, what are you trying, what are you trying to do? It applies to, you know, why we do this podcast. What game are we playing? Are we trying to get clicks and likes and downloads? Or are we trying to have deep, nuanced conversations that are real and actual and about struggles that coaches face. And sometimes we're going to screw up on these conversations. Yeah. I mean, it's why we like, share so much, even in the, the clubhouse, right? I mean, a, a coach just messaged me and goes, thanks for like sharing everything you're sharing because few people have that vulnerability and not to say what I'm doing is right. Not to say it's the one way it's by no means. This is just how I'm approaching and trying to solve problems in real time that I am being confronted with, with various athletes, whether it's physical, mental, or both. Well, the, you know, the easiest way to not get criticized is to not share. Because like, you're an, you're an expert if you don't put anything out there. You can, you can put yourself as expert. And I think that's why it's important to like... You know, John and I open up and share things and you can like some of it. You can disagree with some of it. It's not going to hurt our feelings. It's fine. Like, it's not a big deal. There's a million ways to get, you know, to get to the top. We're just trying to share our experience. And I think that is because we have, we remind ourselves, we talk about this often of like, what game are we playing? We're not playing. We're not trying to play the status game. We're trying to play that, hey, in this regards, there's a lot we can do to help. Like coaches are really important. We need to have difficult conversations. We need to be able to talk through some of this like training stuff that we do. We need, you know, when we, we founded the the scholar program, why did we do that? Both you and I had gone to coaches' educations and said, "Hey, this sucks." We were yes, very disappointed. <laughs> we were like, "This sucks." Like, what are we learning about? And it's not just the information; it's just like this is like there's so much better we could do. There's so much more we can have than just the tried and the standard conversation. So we created it. We said, "Let's let's do courses." Then we said, "You know what? Look around on the internet." there's nowhere to talk you go to let's run or wherever and it's like a cesspool it's like angry people yelling at each other we need a place for coaches to have a conversation john was like let's start the clubhouse let's throw this out let's see what happens and you know during the pandemic what happened we stopped going to meets. We stopped having conversations. What did we do? We said, you know what? With our scholar program, let's have a monthly just get together where you spend 90 minutes shooting the shit and talking coaching because we're not having this at meets anymore. Let's take advantage of Zoom that everybody now has to use. And the pre- and the point isn't to say like, oh, look at these wonderful things to say. It's to say, 
we created those things because we we have tried to be very clear on the game that we're playing, which is bettering coaches, including ourselves, like trying to put your ego aside and create coaches who are better and give people the resources to develop and grow as a coach. Because in our minds, having been athletes and students and all this stuff, the coach is one of the most important people that anybody, if you run, if you participate in sport, the coach, you're going to see your coach more than any professor, any teacher, any advisor in, in school. Like they're going to have a deeply impactful or have the opportunity to have a deeply impactful, you know, um, um, degree on their students. So our job or in our goal is, well, let's make people the best that they can be, both in terms of the X's and O's, but also the how we treat athletes. So get clear on the game you're playing is my message. Is we, we spend a lot of time thinking about it and occasionally we drift off, but we always come back to this. And I think that's incredibly important. And that's why I think this message is, uh, is one worth listening yeah, to. Yeah, Steve, I, I'm glad you brought up all those examples. And essentially, it was all organic. Why? Because it was problem solving. At the end of the day, that's just what we're, we're attempting to do in our little corner of the world, even with all the offerings we put out or this podcast, is just solve problems. And we need more problem solvers, right? We got a lot of consumers out there. We got a lot of people who can do well when things are going their way and there's no confrontation or adversity. But we need problem solvers. Problem solvers, those are the people who can show up to an environment, wherever that environment may be, and go, hey, man, things aren't as good as they could be. Why? Ask the question. What are the like, you know, key um, limiting factors here? And then what can we actually address, which is reality, right? Like we can't change people's limb length. You know, if we could do that, you, you could engineer, you know, super athletes. But you can, you know, with technique, uh, mindset, all these other things, you can coach them to be the best they can be for their given talent, which is their body comp- their body structure, right? It's It's even like how we talk about, you know, in the previous podcast, everyone's a special snowflake, right? Everyone has biceps, everyone has triceps, everyone has tendons, but everyone's genetic code means that those, that tendon structure, that bicep structure just might be a little different than the next. And we know the basic general structure of it, but you can do, you know, there's a, I was reading this weightlifting thing and there was this one guy who had like just this amazing, well-developed biceps in um, the physique bodybuilding world. And then he's like, he credited it to this one exercise. And millions of people did that exercise and it didn't work. Why? Because his genetic makeup of his bicep allowed for the bicep to hypertrophy in that regard. So we have to remember, it's just, let's problem solve and solve the problems for where you're at. Don't solve the problems as someone else you think should don't let someone else write the book for you don't of life you write your own book yeah there's examples and inspiration but the most important thing is we write our book absolutely absolutely we tell our stories own it write your own book don't let someone else do that 
Thanks so much for listening. Again, if you want to join in, be a part of the Scholar Program, please do so. We welcome it. We're trying to create it. It's a dollar a day. We 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 make it a dollar a day because it acts as our kind of uh, filtering mechanism because we want good people who are invested over the lifetime. Um, and we promise you're going to get that value. And if you don't think you are, you contact us and we are always pushing for figuring out how we can deliver value. So thanks so much for everybody for listening. And in, until next time, good luck racing, good luck competing, know what game you're playing.